Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports. Dan here. If you listened to the last episode, you know that Andrew and I ran quite long on this topic of the 96 Yankees, which is not unusual for us, especially when we're talking about something that we care about so deeply, one of our favorite teams of all time. So we hope you enjoyed part one, and we hope you will enjoy part two as Andrew and I delve into the playoffs and the postseason run of the 1996 New York Yankees. Enjoy. All right, so let's go to the playoffs. I don't know that we necessarily need to go over every single game in detail, yeah. but sort of the to the point I was making, by the time the playoffs roll around, this is a very different team. So you look, just to kind of go through the roster, Laritz had been there for a while, but Girardi was new. Tino was new in 96. Fielder had been a mid-season guy. You got Duncan, who was new in 96. Luis Soho had been a mid-year guy. Boggs had been around for a while, but then Hayes was new. Jeter was a rookie. Bernie and O'Neill had been there, but Reigns was new. Mike Aldretti, although he didn't really play, was new. Strawberry, he'd been there the year before, but he also hadn't been there for the first half of 96. And then if you look at the pitching staff, Rogers was new. Pettit had been there. Cone had been there. But Jimmy Key had been hurt the year before. And then the bullpen was basically almost not entirely, but a lot of the bullpen guys hadn't even been there a couple months early. Lloyd, Weathers. And then you had obviously Rivera and Wetland, but such a significant and Nelson, who was new that year. So many of these guys either hadn't been on the team in 95 or some of them hadn't even been on the team in 96. In fact, once you get to the World Series, they're regularly starting Hayes, Strawberry and Fielder as three of their eight position players. That's three guys who hadn't been on the team in June. So it really is a very different team by the time you get to the playoffs. So just to circle back to September really quick, and we'll do that. It gets down to two and a half on September 15th. And I think when you said before about at home with their records against the best teams in the American League, I think you meant those teams at home. Yeah, that is what I meant. That's what you meant. Okay. So what happens is it's down to two and a half home against Baltimore on September 18th. It's up to four at that point. They end up winning the first two games of the series and losing the next two, but they've held serve enough where it holds to where it is and they end up clinching it and they end up holding off Baltimore. Baltimore makes it as a wild card. That's the Ruben Rivera hit the very famous Ruben Rivera hit. Mm -hmm. Um, I wanted to point out where you were talking about the relievers. So they're talking about finalizing the postseason roster and it says the final decision came down to one lefty spot between Graham Lloyd and Dale Polly and one righty job between David Weathers and Dave Pavlis. 
and the two guys who didn't get chosen, I've never heard of. And the two I, guys who did get chosen became very big parts of these teams. I remember both of those guys. I think one of them was, was it Pavlis who was like, a no, that, that's somebody else. That was Mark Hutton. One of the guys had a club foot or something. I don't remember. That might have been one of those guys. Maybe it was Polly, but yeah, no, it was two guys who you're right were were gone by the following year. Meanwhile, Lloyd and Weathers, Lloyd's there. Lloyd's there even through '98. Lloyd doesn't leave the Yankees. Lloyd's actually part of the trade for Clemens along with David Wells, and then uh, you know Homer obviously and, and Homer Bush. Yeah, exactly. Weathers isn't there quite as long, but he's he plays a role. You know what Dale Polly and Graham Lloyd have in common? Are they both Australian, right? Also, one of their names is very associated with the word cracker. <laughs> Don't cut that. Don't cut it. I won't. That's very, that's very important. <laughs> um, anyway, moving rapidly along here. <laughs> that's what one of my college professors would say. Anytime he said something irrelevant, he would say, moving rapidly along. Um <laughs> So they go into the playoffs, and I think it's worth pointing out. So they go in. They're the American League East champions this year. They're not the wild cards, not the wild card. And it's sort of an upset. Baltimore wins the wild card. That's not surprising. Uh, Cleveland wins the American League Central. Also not surprising. It's a little bit of a surprise is Seattle is not the American League West winner. It's the Texas Rangers. So that's who the Yankees are going to meet in the first round. And the Yankees are thrilled about that because they did not want to have to deal with Seattle again, especially not in a short series. And the other thing, too, is that these are the days when and I don't know who had the best record in the American League East might, or in the American League. Rather, was it was it the Yankees have the best record in the American I believe, League? But let me I'll look it up real quick. Might have been Cleveland, too. The Yankees in Texas were tied with the best with the second best record at 90. Cleveland won 99 games. Cleveland had the best record in baseball. Okay, so the Yankees would have played Texas no matter what. Under those rules at the time, yeah. Even under today's rule, today's today's different. But, you know, if if they had gone sort of wild card, played the best team, it still would have been Cleveland and Baltimore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't like the year before where they had, in 95, no matter who the wild card was, they were playing the AL West. Unless it was another team from the AL West. Yes. I think what's important to realize about this team. So they go down one, nothing. They lose the first game at Yankee stadium to the Rangers. Cone gets out pitched by John Burkett. And this is, this is a team full of heavy hitters on the Rangers. This is an offensive team. In addition to Juan Gonzalez, you got Mickey Tettleton, Will Clark, Rusty Greer, Pudge. This is a team full of hitters. And Cone pitches game one. He doesn't pitch great. He gives up six earned runs in six innings. Juan Gonzalez hits a home run off a of cone in the fourth inning. And then Dean Palmer also hits a home run off a of cone. The Yankees are never really in it. They don't start fielder. They put Tino Martinez at first base and Strawberry at DH. Both guys, or actually, no, Tino has a good game, but Strawberry goes hitless. And this is not the Yankee team that you would come to know. 
This is a team that had choked the year before in the playoffs. And now all of a sudden, here they are. They're at home, but they're down one nothing. And there seems to be this idea that maybe they're headed for another first round exit, but then they go into what's the first of several epic games that they play during the 96 postseason, and they win this crazy game two at Yankee Stadium. I remember, and this is a weird thing, I remember where they had lost game one and that, you know, the morning between game one and game two, I was having breakfast, getting ready to go to school. And my father was walking around and maybe watching the, looking at the Poughkeepsie journal or something. And somehow the subject of like, if the Yankees won the parade or something like that. And he's like, well, if they don't win tonight, there ain't going to be a parade. And I just, for whatever reason, remember him saying that. And they were only down one, nothing at the time, but it was clear to me that, okay, if he goes, if they go down two to nothing, that will probably be the end of the 96 Yankees. So a couple themes emerge in this game too. First of all, Gonzalez just continues to smack the Yankees around. Um, he hits two more home runs. And I'm going to defer to Andrew because there is a legendary Bob Costas line. And so, uh, I'll let you have it. So, and I don't, I'm not going to pretend I remember this from the time, but I remember it from the, the, VHS we have and that you're currently watching, which probably ended an hour ago. Well, no, I'm actually I'm not watching that. I'm watching games, oh, game four. game four of '96, which did not end an hour ago. Although it's already six to three in the in the um, eighth innings. So. Yeah, they're coming back already. Um, <laughs> so I remember it from the VHS. The game was on NBC, and this has become a legendary thing with me and my brother during video games or really anything. And after Gonzalez hits that, he's killed them in game one. And then he hits a home run early in game two. And Bob Costas says, George Steinbrenner better check the deed because right now it's Juan Gonzalez who owns the Yankees. And I realized Bob Costas, like, I think I've associated because of that one call. Anytime I hear Bob Costas do a sporting event now, I like panic because I assume it's bad news for my team. I remember a few years ago, he would call like a random like Wednesday night game on MLB network. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching it one time and the Yankees were playing somebody and it was like May and they were like losing three to nothing or something. And in my head, I'm like, Oh my God, this is a disaster. Cause I was hearing like, cause Cox just was calling the game. So in my head, it was like the ALCS or something. And I'm like, no, they can lose to Kansas city tonight. It's not the end of the world if they lose, but yes, George Steinbrenner better check the deed because right now it's Juan Gonzalez who owns the Yankees. So a couple of themes emerge in this game that are important for the rest of the series. And in one case, the rest of the Yankee dynasty. First of all, the fielder is firmly entrenched after trying the experiment with strawberry DH in the first game. They put fielder at DH He goes two for three, including a home run, two RBIs, and he is probably their best offensive player. Him and Bernie are probably the two best offensive players that the Yankees have for the rest of the playoffs. That's number one. Number two is that the bullpen is just incredible in, I think it's, I want to do my quick math. I think in five and two thirds innings, they gave up four hits 
and no runs. And that's Rivera, Wetland, Lloyd, Nelson, Kenny Rogers, although it looks like they just brought him in to walk somebody because he's got no innings pitched in one walk. And then Brian Bowringer, who pitches a third of an inning and gets the win. All those guys, not a single earned run in almost six innings of work. And then the, the final thing is that Andy Pettit doesn't pitch great. He pitches six and a third, gives up four runs, six walks, a couple of home runs, both to Gonzalez. But this is kind of the emergence of this idea of Andy Pettit as the stopper. And that's something that the Yankees have throughout this playoff run. And even after Pettit comes back a little bit in that, you know, that 09, 2010, 11 time period. So those are kind of the three themes that w- that emerge. They win the game in the bottom of the 12th when Hayes bunts. He's attempting to bunt Tim Jeter over from second base and with no outs in the bottom of the 12th. And there's an error by Dean Palmer at third base. He throws the ball away. Jeter scores. Yankees win. Game three is a game that doesn't get talked about quite as much. I remember this game very vividly. This is another comeback. Yankees are down two to one going into the ninth inning. I believe Gonzalez hits yet another home run. Yep, another home run for Gonzalez. This time off of Jimmy Key. But the Yankees go in. They once again get a great bullpen performance. They get three innings of one hit ball from Jeff Nelson, no runs, and they win the game in the ninth inning on just a series of hits. Jeter singles, rain singles, Bernie hits a sack fly, Duncan singles. They kind of do it with the small ball. They do it with those same guys with Bernie, with fielder, with Reigns. They win that game. And then game four, which I remember, this was a day game against Texas. It started at 12 o'clock uh, local time, 12 o'clock in Texas. They win that game. Again, they get great bullpen performances, uh, three innings of scoreless one-hit ball from David Weathers this time. Rivera gets the hold. Wetlands gets the save. Bernie Williams is at 467 for the series. Fielder's at 364. Bernie hits two home runs, including one off uh, future Yankee reliever Mike Stanton. And they go from basically mid-game to everybody thinking they're sort of dead in the water. They sweep three in a row, two, three, and four from the Rangers, and they're moving on. Yeah, and you're right. It turned that quickly. They lost in game one. It looked like they were screwed halfway through game two, and they turned it on quickly and win. They go down to Texas. They win games three and four. And game four in Texas is another comeback. I didn't even notice Mm -hmm. that. It's 4 nothing in the fourth inning there, and they come back and win. So they come back in all three of those wins. There's very few wins in this whole postseason that the Yankees don't come back in. Mm-hmm. And they only in that game four, it's important to point out Kenny Rogers starts, gives them two innings. Yeah, he stinks again. Yes. And they get an inning out of Brian Bullringer, who's also not good. And then it goes to Weathers for three innings, 
Rivera for two, Wetland for one, and they do enough to to win it. It should also be pointed out that this was the Texas Rangers' first playoff appearance. Uh, the first two games in New York were their former, very for, very recent former owner and current governor of Texas makes a crack that he would not go to that game because he would have to arm himself. Yep. And he, five years later, would be at Yankee Stadium for the World Series in the wake of 9-11. He himself, to the best of my knowledge, was not armed that night, but he was... 500 people around him were. (laughs) Including somebody dressed as an umpire. And that was uh, the 43rd president of the United States, George W. Bush, who had just become the owner of the uh, Texas Rangers, or excuse me, just become the governor of Texas and had previously been the owner of the Texas Rangers. And if you would have, I don't know, again, I, did he actually, I guess he probably didn't go to the games as governor, as, as owner, he probably would have, but. I think he said he went to the games in in, in Texas, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But who would have thought five years later he'd get one of the loudest ovations in the history of that stadium? Yeah. So the Baltimore series really kind of gets overshadowed, and we delved into this very deeply with, uh, Andrew's friend Mike uh, just about a year ago. That's the Jeffrey Mayer game. We should just mention real quick that on the other side, Baltimore as the wild card dispatches of the defending American League champion Indians in a what was it? Was it a seven game? Oh, was it was it a clean sweep? No, four four game. Okay, three out of five. So Baltimore beats Cleveland in. They beat them three to one. They win game one behind David Wells. They win game two in a late rally in the bottom of the eighth. Armando Benitez gets the win. Game three, they lose back in Cleveland. And then in game four, they win. These are all late games. They win in game four, four to three in 12 innings to knock off the defending American League champions. So we get a American League East American League Championship Series. And again, the Yankees owned the Orioles that year. They beat them 10 times out of 13, including every game in Camden Yards that year. And they head in to the American League Championship Series. And as strange as it sounds, in a lot of ways, the Orioles were the big market team here. I want to touch on that because I have what I have here is I have the payrolls for every team in 1996. And the Yankees are number one, but they're not number one by that much. And some of these teams, I'll just give you the top 10. Baltimore and Cleveland are both way up there. Yeah. So here's the 1996 Major League payrolls. The Yankees are first with 52 million. The Orioles are second at 48. The Braves are third at 47. The Indians, 45. The White Sox, 41. The Reds at 40, the Red Sox at 39, the Mariners at 39, the Rangers are, are at 35. So, and the Rockies are up there. Meanwhile, you got teams who these days you would consider somewhat big market teams, like the Mets are towards the bottom, the Angels are towards the bottom, the Astros are towards the bottom. Where are the Dodgers? All right, 96, the Dodgers are. They were the team. Yeah, they're one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. They're twelve. Okay, so I mean, this like was a the third waning. The this was the waning days of the O'Malley before they sold the Rupert Murdoch 
So they were, you know, a, a mid-market team, even despite being in Los Angeles. So the Orioles, you know, my first couple of years, I thought the Orioles were the Yankees' traditional rivals. It wasn't until a few years later when I learned all about the, like, Yankees-Red Sox thing. At the time, I was like, the Orioles are the Yankees' rivals. Yeah, and they were for that time in the 90s. And you just look, I mean... Alomar Hall of Fame, Eddie Murray, who's older at this point, but Hall of Fame, Ripken, obviously Hall of Fame, Rafael Palmero, who, you know, people would consider a, a borderline Hall of Famer if it weren't for the steroids. Brady Anderson, who had 50 home runs that year. Bonilla, who was a big, you know, who was a big deal. This was a big time team, especially as far as the offense and the lineup is concerned. Yankees beat them in five. The Jeffrey Mayer game is obviously the one that gets the most attention when in the, what is it, the bottom of the eighth, Jeter hits a home run that is, you know, widely believed should have been fan interference. But the Yankees, you know, it's allowed to stand. It's many years before replay. Yankees then go on to win in the bottom of the 11th when Bernie Williams hits a home run uh, to deep left field. Did this ball hit the foul pole or it just came really close to the foul pole? I don't know if you remember, but I I think it came close, but I could be wrong. You know, it's Um, funny in my mind's eye, I see it hitting the foul pole because this is another one. I remember that home run very vividly. So then they lose game two and then they kind of come back there's not a lot of drama in the rest of this series. The one thing that I would note is that strawberry has a really good series. He hits three home runs in this series. Uh, it's also, I think worth noting that Gooden does not play. Oh, doc Gooden does not play a role in this postseason whatsoever. His arm has gone dead and he struggles through September. And I don't think he wins a game after some time in August. So he's on the bench, but he's not on the postseason roster. Yankees win. It's still kind of other than the craziness of the Jeffrey Mayer game. It's still kind of the same story. Bernie Williams is having an incredible series. He's the uh, MVP of the ALCS. I just want to see what does he hit in that series? He hits. Oh, that can't be right. It, oh, yeah, there we go. He hits 474 with two home runs, six RBIs. 18 total bases wins the MVP. I mentioned the good year that straw or the good series rather that strawberries having the one guy who's really come to struggle by this point is Mariano Duncan. Who's not even, he doesn't even play in the clinching game. They've got Luis Soho in Duncan. Who I remember was just always a very streaky player swung at everything, swung at everything. He hit like 340 on the year. He had a crazy batting average year, but he was just so streaky. It ends up ends up wearing out his welcome the following year. He's he's in a lot of ways one of the emotional leaders of this 96 team. He's the guy who has the we play today, we win today, that's it. And they get t-shirts made up with all that stuff, but a very streaky player. I think the other thing that's worth noting is that by this point, the Yankees basically are using almost their whole roster, their whole position player roster. The only guys who really aren't getting any starts are 
Andy Fox, who's a rookie and he's like the backup second baseman, but then his big use to the team is as a pinch runner. And Mike Aldretti, who's kind of that last guy at the end of the bench, but they're playing Boggs and Hayes both. They're playing Soho once in a while. They're playing Lyrits and Girardi both. They're playing Tino and Cecil both hmm. in the outfield. They're alternating between Bernie, O'Neill, William, Bernie, O'Neill, Strawberry, and Reigns. So that, you know, they got 12 or 13 guys who are, re- you know, have a chance at being in the starting lineup. And this is when you're into the ALCS and the World Series. This is a really big well, deal for a team to be this deep. And it's about to become a bigger deal when they play some games in a National League park. I want to go. This story is from the regular season, but it holds, you know, it's it's relevant now. It's from back when they were getting ready to play Baltimore in a game in September. And they're sitting there for a rain delay. And it said, Tory had been pleasantly surprised before the game when Daryl Strawberry entered his office and told him not to worry about his feelings, that it was in the team's best interest to start Tim Raines in left field. Tory appreciated the gesture as another sign that Strawberry really had changed from selfish young man to elder statesman. So, you know, just kind of an example of some of these veterans buying in. Just to put a button on the, the games in Camden Yards, in game three, Baltimore goes up two to nothing. It's two to one going into the eighth. And in the eighth inning, Jeter hits a ball to tie the game at two. Then Tino hits a ball, an opposite field double to left. As the ball comes in, Todd Zeal caught the ball, catches the ball, fakes the throw to second. And this I remember distinctly. The ball bounces away from him and just starts to roll away. And Bernie, who's at third, takes a risky move here and breaks and ends up getting in before Ripken can get the ball to the plate. They end up scoring four runs in the inning. They win the game. They win in the in game four, kind of going away, but it was 5-4 in the eighth inning, and they scored three runs late. And then in the in game five, they're up 6-0. It gets to 6-4. And my kind of lasting memory of this game, it was a Sunday. I remember watching this in my bedroom, and I remember – Ripton making the last out and busting it out of the box and trying to slide face first into first base to beat it out. One Hall of Fame shortstop in Ripken hit it to another Hall of Fame shortstop in Jeter. Yep. And that was it. So, you know, we talked and I would direct anybody to our episode on the 1990s Orioles. You can also listen to our episode on the 1890s Orioles. It just won't be relevant to our discussion here. Um <laughs> I under, if I was an Orioles fan, yes, the Jeffrey Mayer thing would make me not thrilled to talk about to this day. The Yankees won the series in five games. They went down to Camden Yards and beat the Orioles three straight games. They did not lose in Camden Yards all year. You're not going to convince me that the 1996 Orioles were a better team than the 1996 Yankees. No, but that game sort of had a long legacy, a sort of part of the Oriole-Yankee rivalry mystique, whatever you want to call it. There was this really weird story, A couple, uh, I think it was the following year, where there was the, the Orioles were playing. No, I think it was 97. Oh, was it 90? No. No, it was 97. Was killed? I knew where you were going. I was going to do it myself. <laughs> I was I was going to do it myself, and I was like, "He's going to get pissed." I it was, was ninety. Gonna... It was ninety seven, though. Was it ninety seven? Yeah, it was the it was the following season. Yeah, but... yeah, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right. Because right. if it was ninety eight, Kellerman wouldn't have been there. 
That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, spring of '98, it would have been. But yeah, you're you're right. I w- I was gonna do the same thing. There was almost something I was gonna do. Before. What was I gonna do before when you said something? It was. I think it was a homicide reference. Yeah, but I, I knew exactly where you were going. Yeah, but so that that game though that becomes. You're right. Oriole fans are wrong. I mean, you don't win one and then lose one and then have that effect, especially when you win three games and the other teams park. We should talk about a little bit of the backdrop going on when I talked about Joe Torrey's older brother, Rocco, his oldest brother, Rocco, dying. I had given you the um, a little bit of the context of him thinking it was his brother, Frank. When he got the call, he was like, oh, I'm assuming my brother, Frank, is dying. The tragedy of his brother, Rocco, dying was that all the stuff he thought about his brother, Frank, was still true. So... His brother, Frank, did need a new heart. He was in failing health. He was not going to survive if he did not get a transplant. And that's sort of the backdrop to which the 96 World Series starts from a Joe Torre. Oh, and also we should talk about when they win the pennant, Joe Torre, who'd been around for years, had been on good teams as a player, had been on bad teams as a player, Managed some okay teams, managed some bad teams, had never been to a World Series. His brother Frank had as a member of the Milwaukee Braves. Yep. And Joe Torre was the guy who never even got to the World Series. And when they beat Baltimore, he had at least gotten to the World Series. And there's just so much to the the Torre storyline beyond the stuff with his brother and the first year manager. He's a native New Yorker. He has a you know family who is very sort of entrenched in the kind of the New York lifestyle and culture. A brother who was a cop. He's got a sister who's a nun in 1996. She's a nun and a teacher at a Catholic elementary school, I think, in Brooklyn. Newly remarried. He's got a very young child, I think a baby that's like less than a year old. So he's there's just so many different sort of things to enrich his story so and again it just it goes back to this whole thing you just you look at all these guys i mean everybody's got a story you got you know jeter's a rookie you know this this phenom rookie who ends up being this once in a generation not just a baseball player but a figure you've got boggs who had 10 years ago in the same city had barely lost out on a world series you got the gooden and the strawberry redemption you got Cone, Pettit coming in, Rivera on his way to becoming this, you know, legendary player at a position that nobody even really knew existed yet. Only a couple of years before you got all, you know, Tim Raines, Hall of Famer, finally winning a title. You know, you got all of these just story after story after story, you know, Tino replacing a legend like there's almost nobody that you can look at and be like, yeah, you know, their, their story is not that interesting. It's just, it's crazy. And so there's this hype. There hasn't been a world series in 10 years in New York. It's been, you know, I guess the Rangers had won a couple of years before the Knicks had been good, but all of a sudden, and incidentally, also you got this brave team who everybody thinks is on the way to becoming the next major baseball dynasty. They'd barely lost in 91 in a seven-game series. They had lost to the Blue Jays in 92. Then they go out and they sign Greg Maddox, who's probably the best pitcher 
of the era, maybe one of the best 10 right-handed pitchers in Major League Baseball history. They don't make it in 93, but then they win it finally in 95. They're looking really good. They've been down. People don't remember this because of the fact they didn't win. They were down 3-1 to the Cardinals in 96, came back and won. Who was it? that I think it was Smoltz that was the Cy Young Award winner that year. But yep. by this point, all three of them had won it. Glavin, Maddox, and Smoltz. In, three years in a row. Three years in a row. Jeez. Yeah. And that was, so 96, I, the Yankees won early. They won in five. So we're waiting. I think by the time the Yankees had won, the Cardinals were up three to one. Yeah. And I remember kind of thinking, all right, let's play the Cardinals. And then the Braves came back and the Braves won. And it was the age old sort of rest versus rust argument. And in this case, the rust was true because they come out on the Saturday night. Well, let me just say one thing before we get to the series. And then this just occurred to me that in and of itself, and I'm sure maybe I thought of it in 1996, but I hadn't thought of it since that would have been an interesting storyline. Tory playing the Cardinals playing the Braves too, but well, Cardinals, the Braves, just, Cardinals had just fired him the year before. You're right. Yeah. So anyway, so there's all this excitement. Game one gets rained out. That's right. On a Friday night or was that? Saturday? It was a Saturday. Do you know where I was that Saturday? No. I was in an army football game. Oh yeah. And I remember driving home with my friend, listening to the radio broadcasting from Yankee stadium. And it was just as I, we were driving home at, you know, four or five o'clock in the afternoon, it was just becoming clearer and clearer that they were not going to play that day. And they, they get totally killed in game one. They lose 12, nothing. 12, one. 12-1, you're right, 12-1, and it was game one was Pettit. Pettit gets completely smacked around. The Andrew Jones, who was a rookie, I don't even know if he was a rookie. I think he was, but he was like 19. I don't know that he had even hit his rookie limit. In Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he, I think I remember hearing that he, they were saying this guy was not even a rookie. He'd only played in three 31 games. And so, yeah, he usually the baseball referee, yeah, he exceeded rookie limits during 1997 season. So it was his first year. He had never played in the majors before 96. He hadn't done much. He only got one plate appearance in the division series, played a little more in the LCS, but not every game. And then all of a sudden, he's smacking the Yankees around, hitting home runs, 400 batting average, you name it. And they just get killed 12 to one and then four to nothing the following game. And the the one thing I remember about game two is, and I don't, so game one would have been a Sunday night. Yeah. Game two was a Monday night and I had football practice that night. And the only thing I remember is getting home and they were losing, I want to say, two or three to nothing. And for whatever reason, this is the one thing I remember was Wade Boggs grounding into a double play when there was like first and second with nobody out or first and second with one out. And I was like, that was their last chance. And I just that's a it's a weird thing that I remember as a kid. But the famous story and I will admit for years I had this wrong. 
I thought Tory said this after game two. He actually said this after game one. I think after it was the, was it after game one or before game two, but it was not. Well, that's the same thing. Well, no, I don't know if it was, I think it was actually right before game two started is what but I'm was, saying. Okay, yeah. So basically Steinbrenner was panicking. They've lost game one. And Tory said to him, essentially, I'm trying to find out the exact quote, but Tory said to him, basically, I don't think we're focused. I don't think we're going to win tonight. Who was it who pitched game two? Was it uh, Key? Yeah. Key. He said, I don't think we're focused. I don't think we can win tonight. But listen, Atlanta's my town. We're going to go down there. We're going to sweep them three. And we're going to come back here and we're going to win it Saturday night. And the uh, quote from in that 90, in that VHS is Steinbrenner says, and I said, sweet Jesus, are we in trouble? <laughs> Um, but that's, that was basically Tori had said, we're going to, and I'm trying to find the break, the, the Milwaukee paper. This is what I want to, so the Yankees lose game two. So they're going back to Atlanta. And this is my favorite quote. This is from the Atlanta journal constitution. When the Yankees awoke in Atlanta, cause they'd lost the day off remember? Yeah. They, so they got to go right back to New York or got to go right down to Atlanta. I should say. When the Yankees awoke in Atlanta on October 22nd, they slowly became aware of Mark Bradley's column titled 27 Yankees might might lose to these guys in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. That the Braves are going to win this World Series is apparent. It is also, in the grand scheme, secondary. No longer is this team playing against the overmatched Yankees. The Braves are playing against history. Bradley ranked these Braves as the greatest team of the post-free agency era, even better than the Big Red Machine. We are no longer watching a competition. We are witnessing a coronation. I'm guessing the Braves, when they started spring training in 97, were a little frosty to that reporter. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here's the thing, though. Can you blame the guy for thinking that at this point? No. To be honest, no. I mean, here's the thing. There's not a superstar on this Yankee team. Bernie's the closest. You got old guys and young guys. Basically, you don't have any superstar on the team. Meanwhile, now justice is hurt, but Chipper Jones is doing, you know, he's kind of coming into his own and you got, there's not a pitching matchup in that series that the the Yankees aren't far behind on. Maybe game four, but you know, Nagel's a hell of a lot better than Kenny Rogers in 96. Uh, you're right. You're right. You're right. You're right. So we go to game three and it says I'm reading again from the book. It says with the day off between games two and three lost due to rain out. Cone was supposed to leave before game two to fly to Atlanta. His plane had mechanical problems. He sat on the tarmac for an hour he basically pleaded with the pilots to let him off. He went to Yankee Stadium and watched them lose game two. So he went back to Atlanta with the team. And this was a became a Tory staple, which was to start what you felt was your best pitcher in game three. Yeah. Because you can either take a commanding lead, you can break a tie, or if you're down two nothing, you can preserve, you know, you can stay alive down two nothing. And also Cone was a National League guy. He pitched in county in Bolton County Stadium for you know several years before this, so that's Tory's thinking going into this game. 
And he, he also going into this game, and again, part of it's no DH, but he O'Neill, Boggs, and Tino all out of the lineup, puts Hayes, Strawberry, and uh Cecil and Cecil in. But then you also got to think about that means he's got O'Neill, Boggs, and Martinez on his bench. Yep. Glavin pitches for the Braves. The Yankees take a one-nothing lead. Again, it's National League Baseball. Reigns walks. Jeter bunts him over. Bernie singles him in. They get another run in the fourth on an error. Cohn walks Glavin to start the sixth inning, which is obviously not a great start. He loads the bases in the sixth with one out. Then he gets McGriff to pop up. He walks in a run. And then he gets Javi Lopez to pop out to get to two to one. It gets out of the inning. And then in the eighth inning, they blow it open a little. Not blow it open, but Jeter singles. And then Bernie hits a two-run home run to make it four to one. And that, I believe, ends up being the final is four to one. Or excuse me, they end up winning five to two. They get another run in the eighth. The Braves get a run in the eighth. But Rivera comes in, shuts the door. Wetland comes in and saves it. So the Yankees stay alive in the series uh, two to one. And the story from this one is in the sixth inning with the Braves threatening. They You mentioned Glavin walks and then Marquise Grissom singles. So they got and then Chipper Jones walks. And so they got with one out and the Yankees up two nothing. They got Fred McGriff coming up with one out in the sixth. Torrey goes out to the mound. Usually, if you know baseball, usually when the manager goes out, that means that the pitcher's coming out. But Torrey looks cone in the eye and he says i need you don't you know don't bs me here can you get this guy and cone tells him i feel great i can get this guy cone later said i was lying to tory but i was lying to myself too so we have to pop up and you know the rest is is history and they go on to win game three so he pitched 147 pitches he walked the pitcher and then walked the pitcher in from third base and he goes out there and, and he says, Tori says, this is very important. I need the truth. How do you feel? Again, Cohn told his manager he was fine and revealed that his slider had abandoned him, but he had enough other choices. With all the John Wayne-ish conviction he could muster, Cohn locked on his manager and said, I'll get this guy for you. This was not enough for Tori, who appealed one more time for the truth. Don't bull S me, he said. Cohn said, I can get him. I can get out of this inning. Tory responded, okay, go get him. And he said, Tory walked into the dugout, the greatest relief pitcher in the world, still warming up in the bullpen down the left field line. So anybody who tries to talk to me about Joe Tory not being a phenomenal manager, uh, this, th- I mean, think about that decision. You have to be right there. Yeah. You're down two to nothing with a pitcher who's got nothing left. And you know he's got nothing left. But you got to trust this guy's basically hearts and brain to get you out of this. And he was right. It's a 50-50 call. And he was right. So we're we're running long here as, as not, you know, as to be expected. But we probably should spend a little bit of time on this game for. As the, I was doing my research for this, I was like. This is we're we're doing three hours on this. Like, <laughs> I gotta be honest. As I was looking at it, I was like, between anecdotes and our like, I was like, there's no way this is less than three hours long. So, yeah, 
so they go into game four with Kenny Rogers, who's stunk all series. He should have folded him. All right. <laughs> He's frankly stunk most oh, of the year. Braves score three in the second. The Yankees are not hitting. And I remember watching this game. Do you know who gets their first hit of the game? The Yankees. Is it Rogers? It's Kenny Rogers. And I remember thinking. And every time I watch this game, although I, I'm watching it now, although I missed, I didn't, I was looking down during that at bat. I didn't see it. Every time I watch this game and I remember even as a 14-year-old, 13-year-old thinking this, and every time I rewatch this game, I think it again. The fact that Kenny Rogers pitching horribly comes up to bat in the third inning, gets a single off the third baseman's glove, off Chipper Jones's glove, and thinking to myself, Kenny Rogers is our worst pitcher right now and our best hitter, and that's a problem. So they go down 3-0. At some point, now I don't remember exactly when this was. At some point, I have to admit, I went to bed. And I thought the series was over. And I'll talk a little bit about the next morning for me in a second. But eventually, the Yankees go down 5 nothing, then 6 nothing. Rodgers gets pulled. They bring in David Weathers, who also struggles in the 5th. And then they go into the sixth and they start to sort of gradually claw back. So in the sixth, yeah, they and at this point, the Yankees, I believe, win probability is in the single digits. One percent. Yeah. So they're down. I'm sorry, four percent. Four percent. They're down six nothing. Weathers came in to start the fifth. Let's up one run. So okay, it's six nothing. Jeter singles. Bernie walks. Cecil singles. Scores two runs, and that's the end of the. They, they don't get. They excuse me. All right, I, I am starting. No, then Hayes knocks Cecil in. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. It, it the window reset on me, but yeah. So. So then, again, right off the bat, there you got the two two of the big late season acquisitions being the guys who drive the rally. So they get it to six three that inning. So that's the end of the fifth. They don't get any more in the fifth. Whether it's or Nelson comes in, Nelson goes one, two, three in the sixth. The Yankees don't do anything in the top of the seventh. Nelson again gets them. He lets, I think, one guy on, but it, he walks a guy, but gets through the seventh clean. The Yankees in the bottom of the seventh, or excuse me, the Yankees don't do anything in the eighth, or excuse me, in the seventh. And we go to the top of the eighth, and Hayes singles. And right now, Mark Wallers is in the game. Hayes singles. Strawberry comes up and singles. Mariano Duncan comes up and grounds out. So it's first and second, one out. Six to three. And up comes Jim Laritz, the backup catcher ostensibly. He'd been he's pretty much would start whenever Pettit would start. He was Pettit's personal catcher. And he's only in the game here because earlier on. Tory had pinch hit Paul O'Neill for it was either O'Neill or Tino. Let me look that up real quick. He had pinch hit. And as you're looking this up, he had pinch hit O'Neill for Girardi. 
So it, they had to put Laritz in. It should be pointed out that Paul O'Neill is barely able to walk. He's got a, what is it, a thigh injury or a calf injury? And he can barely move out there. He He's he's limping like, like a guy who just got, like, when you see a, a football player get a helmet to the leg and get kind of like a cramp Charlie horse deep bruise kind of thing he's got that kind of thing where every step like it's causing him physical pain so and i want to talk more about o'neill when we get to game five that's why i said wanted to set the stage there so layritz comes up layritz you know was the is a very sort of eccentric guy and certainly had some problems in the future after this would have that sort of bat wiggle and he and tory not friends he and tory do not see eye to eye yeah, Lambert feels like he belongs more on those early 90s teams, to be honest. Um, yeah, with Spike Owen and Mike Gallego and Deion yeah, James. Yeah, yeah. And it's this is also, the, should point out, this is, I believe, the first World Series that Fox is doing. It this, is. And this is, people have, and we can, this is for another episode, but like, people have been critical of Joe Buck for a long time. And I think most of it's unfair. Maybe parts of it are fair. But to me... I grew up with Joe Buck as the baseball announcer for these Yankees World Series. And this is where he says, what does he say? Back to the track at the wall. We are tied. So before that, real quick, Wollers is pitching and he throws a slider. Mm-hmm. And McCarver says, I don't understand why Wollers is throwing a slider here. This is Mark Wollers, the Braves closer. McCarver, Tim McCarver says, I don't understand why he's throwing a slider here. If you're going to get beat, get beat with your best pitch in the fastball. Don't get beat with your third best pitch. Wallers throws another slider. You're right. Buck says back at the track at the wall. We are tied. And I think McCarver says something like, oh, they're dancing in the streets in New York right now. Mm-hmm. And that tied it up. And there's this, you know, just this famous image of Layritz going around, you know, clapping his hands around in the bases. Yankees tie it up. They bring Rivera in. Rivera pitches great. In fact, as I'm sitting here, we're watching this game. I'm in the the top of the eighth or the bottom of the eighth, I should say here, watching Rivera mow down the yeah. mow down the Braves. He lets up a leadoff single and then gets the next three guys out. We go to the top of the ninth, and the Yankees actually waste an opportunity in the top of the ninth. They got two men out. And they get back-to-back singles. Your man Andy Fox comes in to pinch run. But um, once again, who hits the singles? Fielder singles. and Hayes. Then Daryl actually comes in, and or Daryl comes up, and he singles also, but it's an infield single. So it loads the bases for Mariano Duncan, who lines out to the right fielder. So now we go to the bottom of the ninth. Rivera's still in the game. Rivera works around a single and a walk. So he, well, actually gets the first out, then Lemke singles, Jones walks. So it's first and second, one out. Rivera comes out. Here comes Graham Lloyd, who again was awful in the regular season after the Yankees acquired him and has been a rock in the postseason. And what does he do against Fred McGriff? Double play, 6-4-3, out of the inning. We're going to extra innings. And Graham Lloyd, by this point, in I want to see his postseason here because he is pitching almost 
he's almost perfect in the in the postseason. Yeah, Graham Lloyd in eight appearances in this playoffs in a total of not a ton of innings. That's what the four five innings, but eight different appearances. Graham Lloyd, one hit, no runs in eight appearances. He another guy who contributes. And I I have to go on a little bit of a diatribe once we get through describing this game. As cool as that half inning is with Laritz when he ties it up, this half inning is almost better. Wollers is out. You know who comes in for the Braves? Steve Avery. Steve Avery, which is a whole other big, you know, really interesting story. He had been considered sort of along with those other guys, Glavin, Maddox, Smoltz, but he'd been hurt. He'd been kind of in and out of the rotation. And so he's he's relegated at this point, especially with the emergence of Denny Nagel in 95 and 96. Avery's more of a back of the rotation, you know, spot reliever type of guy. This is in the Sherman book. It said Steve Avery entered to pitch the 10th. There was a time in the early 90s when it was easy to believe Avery would be the best brave starter of them all. He won 18 games as a 21-year-old in 91, and again won 18 in 93. He began to lose his fastball young, and 1996 was an injury-plagued season that motivated the Braves to obtain Nagel, reducing Avery to a mop-up man. It was his first appearance in a close game this postseason. So, Laritz leads off, he grounds out. Graham Lloyd comes up. (laughs) Imagine if Graham Lloyd hit a home run. (laughs) You know how in like a really good dramatic movie, you need a little bit of comic interlude once in a while. This is that comic interlude. Watching Graham Lloyd bat at six foot six or whatever he is, is hilarious. He actually makes contact with the ball, but. He makes contact the way like the really terrible kid in Little League would make contact. Like he just throws the bat out there and he just happens to hit it into the ground. So he grounds out. And it's but to be honest, like he could have probably hit somebody else at the very least. He could have put a different even if he was out of bench guys, he could have put a pitcher who would have had a better chance of doing something than Graham Lloyd. But Tory wanted Graham Lloyd to pitch in the 10th. He, he he didn't send Graham Lloyd up there thinking Graham Lloyd was going to like double off the wall. Like, well, and, and here's a genius moment by Tory because they got one guy left on the bench. They got Boggs. Mm-hmm. He could have put Boggs up there. But he waited. So then rings walks Jeter singles. With runners on first and second. Bobby Cox chooses to walk Bernie Williams because Bernie Williams is having just an incredible postseason. And so the Yankees DH at this point is technically Andy Fox because Fox had run for fielder. But they got one guy, and this is what speaks to this Yankee team, and this is why this team has such a special place in my heart. Ten innings into the game, and they've got a Hall of Famer on the bench. They've got Wade Boggs, who bats against Avery. You know, I want to say, and I can't swear to this, it would not surprise me if Boggs did not swing the bat once in this at bat. But, you know, he, he's a Hall of Famer. He, his, his bat slowed down. He's, you know, it, it, 
as he no, himself. Like I think it was a full count based on what I can see here. But that doesn't mean he swung the bat. Oh, yeah, you're right, you're right, you're right, you're right. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Let me see if I can find this. No, he, he fouled one ball off. He fouled one ball off. Okay, so, but still, nonetheless, he took pitches. He worked the count and worked a walk like a Hall of Fame hitter would. Walks in the, the winning run, the go-ahead run, which is Reigns. And then there's this other really weird thing where the, the Cox comes out and he does this weird kind of double switch thing where the, the new pitcher, Klon, Brad Klons, replaces McGriff. They throw Ryan Klesko out there at first base. And then on the very first batter, Hayes pops out and Klesko, having sat on the bench for the better part of four hours, loses the ball and the lights. He drops. Yankees get an insurance run. Lloyd comes out. He gets one out. He gets Klesko out, like you said. And then Wetland comes in, closes the Braves down, and the Yankees win. We need to talk about games five and six, well, but I just I want to close game four real quick. Sorry, go ahead. Did you want to say something? Well, you go ahead, then I'll go on my little diatribe here. So, so the, the one thing I wanted to close out here, it said uh, the Yankees had forgotten to pack a lineup cards before making this trip and had to use those left over from the regular season by the Reds. When Torrey looked at his card after 10 innings, he noticed that he used 22 of his 25 players. Only starting pitchers David Cohn, Jimmy Key, and Andy Pettit had not played. Torrey had asked Cohn to be ready to bat for another pitcher and Key to be ready to pinch run. The game ended at 1236 with Cohn and Key both wearing spikes. And can I be honest before you talk? When I talked about it at the very top of the show years ago, about being romantic about this team, as I was reading that, I'm getting goosebumps. That's Me too. And that this is the team. And but that plays in correctly right into my diatribe. Imagine David Cohn spiking a guy at second base <laughs> in the 12th <laughs> inning of a game. I did, didn't. I mean, the other thing too is like, didn't Hayes ended up going and playing first base because. They had because they had to pinch run for. And, and I'm even wrong. I said that Fielder was the DH, but he wouldn't have been the DH because there was no DH. Yeah. What what happened was, was once. Once Fox pinch ran for Fielder, Fox went in and played third and Fielder went to first. I'm sorry. And Hayes, Hayes. went to first. Yeah. And then Boggs went in for Fox. in the And he played that. third. Yeah. Yep. This is why. It's got nothing to do with purity. It's got nothing to do with any of that stuff. Just more fun. This is why the DH-less baseball is better. Well, you were saying what's just more fun? Just the game without a DH is more fun. Yeah, this team, and this is an American league. The ceiling for fun is so much higher without yeah, a DH. Exactly, and this game is exhibit A of that. Because it's if, if this was a game with a DH... You might have had a little bit of pinch running and maybe one pinch hitter, but you would not have had a team. And that, I think, is what makes this Yankee team, this 96 team so special, is the fact that they had all these guys. They were so deep. They were almost too deep at every position. I don't remember when I went to sleep. What I do remember is going to sleep without there even being a question that they had lost the game and the series was over. My teenage self, you know, eighth grade, my alarm goes off the next morning. And of course, it was set to WFAN. And I remember, I think it went off right at 6 a.m. I, I, I don't remember that, but 
I remember it was just as a sports update was starting. And I remember laying in bed, listening to the highlights of the night before on the sports update talking about, and I remember listening to the comeback in like a 90 second time period and just saying to myself, Oh my God, they won. They won the game. And then it was on. Was that, was that before they interviewed Trent Lott on Imus? You mean, <laughs> I don't know. I don't remember who they had. Uh, uh, I miss in the morning. <laughs> that was also the golden days of Imus, but that's a different, uh, that's a different time. That's a different, That's a different podcast. And it's not this one. <laughs> <laughs> you mean this episode? No, I just mean this doesn't really fit into this podcast. <laughs> well, I, I still think we need to do a WFAN episode at some point, but. Oh yeah. That's no, you're uh, right. You're right. Um, so but now it's on, they're going into game five and it's like, we're going to win this thing. So they go into game five and it's going to be a rematch of the pitching matchup of game one Pettit and Smoltz we're gonna have Andy Pettit and John Smoltz at this point what we thought were the two Cy Youngs Andy Pettit got screwed they gave it to Pat Enkin but it should have been him we go to game five again we're still in Atlanta by the way it should be noted these are the last three games in Atlanta Fulton County Stadium the Olympics uh, had completed about two months earlier in Atlanta and they're going to move into what was at the time Olympic Stadium became Turner Field. So this is game five is 100 percent the last game at Atlanta Fulton County Stadium. Do you remember what the sign said? No. Last chop in the shop. Last chop in the shop. I haven't seen a Yankee do any more damage to Atlanta since Sherman. So anyway, so we go in here. Now the series is tied at two. Now we've talked about how. To a lot of people, you know, it's easy to look back and say, okay, game four was the deciding factor, clearly. But if you look at it at the time, you go, okay, the Braves, the next three games are going to start Smoltz, Maddox, and then Glavin. They've, the series is still tied at two, and the Yankees needed a miracle to tie the series. And Pettit got absolutely smacked in game one. If the Braves win game five at home, all they have to do is win one game. At Yankee Stadium. So you're thinking, okay, obviously, if you're a Braves, you know, the series has not gone the way you would like it to, you know, the last two games have certainly made things more interesting. But if you win game five, you're in good shape. And after what had happened in game four, I don't think anybody really fully expected what we got in game five, which was a one to nothing game with. Very few hits, an absolute pitcher's duel. Still um, the still the best game I've ever seen pitched. You believe so? Yeah, um, I mean, I, I can't think of what else it would have been, but as far as just a performance by both pitchers, you know, big pitchers in a big moment. And honestly, there's a there's an argument to be made, frankly, that Smoltz outpitched Pettit in this so, game. So they're putting up dueling zeros. The Yankees get a run in the top of the fourth. Cecil Fielder doubles and again Cecil's been playing first base every game of this series in Atlanta because he's been playing better and there's no DH so Tino's been on the bench he doubles he gets Charlie Hayes in in the fourth so it's one to nothing and again Pettit and Smoltz are both dealing it's still one to nothing they're both still in as late as the eighth inning 
And this is where, again, Joe Torrey's managerial. What happens really interestingly is going into the top of the ninth inning, the Yankees are up one to nothing. Strawberry grounds out. O'Neill walks. Duncan grounds out. After Duncan steals second base, they walk Lairitz. So it's first and second with nobody out in the top of the ninth in a one-to-nothing game. Joe Torrey lets Andy Pettit go up to hit. I'm going to read from the Sherman book again. The Yankees generated first and third with two outs in the ninth. The pitcher spot was due. Torrey wanted to stick with Pettit for Chipper Jones and Fred McGriff in the bottom of the inning. He could have gone to either Wade Boggs or Tim Raines, who were both in the Hall of Fame. Now, they were both at the end of their careers, but he could have gone to either of them. Two batters who would make the shaky rollers work. Torrey was pretty much conceding the chance to get up more than one to nothing because he wanted Pettit in the ninth. I thought I was done, Pettit admitted years later. Joe Torrey and Don Zimmer called me over and they were joking me to hit a home run off Wallers. He flied out, so he made contact, which was crazy enough. So Pettit comes in for the bottom of the ninth. He right away lets off a double to Chipper Jones. So he obviously makes him, you know, Torrey's immediately open to second guessing there because Chipper Jones doubles. He gets. McGriff to ground out, but now Jones is at third. So the tying run is at third base with one out. Here comes John Wetland. Wetland gets a ground out, keeps Jones at third base. He intentionally walks Ryan Klesko. Here comes Luis Polonia. And do you want to take this over? Who, Luis Polonia, who had been on the Yankees for much of the 90s i think he just got he had just been traded i think early in the 95 season if i'm remembering correctly so this was kind of another one of those show walter guys along with the bernies and the o'neills and that type of thing and he flies out to paul o'neill in right field and o'neill does this thing where he kind of catches the ball on the run with his right-handed glove you know his, his glove on his right hand over his head and then he gets to the wall and he starts just pounding the wall with his open hand because he's so excited. I think the interesting thing about this was that Tory didn't even plan to play O'Neal. He had wanted to go with the Reigns Hayes strawberry triumvirate that I'm sorry, the rain. Yeah. Reigns Hayes strawberry that he'd been go. No, what I'm saying the fielder, Fielder, Hayes, Rain, Strawberry, all four of them. And he had gone to O'Neill and said, you know, you're not going to play tonight again for the third night in a row. And O'Neill kind of accepted it. But Tory just got a feeling about the way O'Neill reacted. And he changed his mind. He swaps out O'Neill for Strawberry. So O'Neill wasn't really even supposed to be out there. And it's again, it's another one of these iconic moments with O'Neill pounding this pounding the wall and they go back to New York. This game was on a Thursday. They go back. They finally have, or no, this game was, yeah, this game was on Thursday. They finally get a day off in the series after five games in a row. They go back to New York for a Saturday. And 
I guess, you know, what happens is earlier that day, Frank Torrey, Joe's brother, who'd been awaiting a heart transplant for weeks, months, whatever it had been, gets his heart. And this is where it's kind of like you can't you can't make this up about yeah. this team. It's just it's not it's it's just it's it's all just so perfect. So they go into this game six. It's Jimmy Key against Greg Maddox. Interestingly enough, 1993, both guys are free agents. The Yankees make a very strong play for Greg Maddox. Maddox had been on the Cubs. He'd won the Cy Young in 92. Yankees make a play for Maddox. Maddox probably never really had any intention of going to New York. So he signs with the Braves. Yankees kind of take Jimmy Key as a consolation prize. And they end up facing off against each other. Against the righty Maddox, the Yankees are able to get some of these other guys back into the lineup. Bog swaps back in for Hayes with the DH. Tino's able to play first. And so they throw, you know, this sort of, you know, the, the, the same lineup that they'd have in the first two games where they got their butts kicked. And the Yankees, they jump on them early. Key starts off strong. I still remember watching that game and, uh, you know, the, the fans really getting behind Jimmy Key with two strikes out in the first two strikes on the and two outs in the first inning. The fans are going nuts. The Yankees only score in one inning. They score in the bottom of the third when the O'Neill doubles and then Joe Girardi, of all people, who's a guy whose name we haven't really talked about here. He's, you know, he's kind of the forgotten man. Laritz is the catcher who's getting all the big moments. Girardi is just kind of there. And there's been all these heroes, whether it's Strawberry, whether it's Fielder, whether it's Jeter or Hayes or Reigns or Boggs getting the walk. Girardi had kind of been the forgotten man in this whole postseason, but he hits a triple, scores O'Neill. Yankees get two more runs. Chugging for three. Girardi is chugging for three, as uh, Joe Buck said. A very young Joe Buck, by the way. You don't even realize. I think he was like 31 years of age at this point. The Yankees get a couple more runs, and then it's basically a bullpen game after that. Key goes, what does Key go? I think Key goes five and a third. Key goes five and a third, and then they just they bring in Weathers, and he pitches well. And then in the seventh, they return to that formula that's worked so well for them all year, which is two innings of Rivera. And then an inning of wetland, wetland. But let's, but let's, let's talk. So, Key comes out after five and a third. They give uh, Weathers. It's it's almost like a perfect finale because you get the starter goes, then Weathers gets one out, walks the guy. Here comes Lloyd. He gets an out. Oh, that's right. They bring in Lloyd too for a, a batter. Then you go to the formula. So you go to. Rivera for the seventh and the eighth. And like always, Rivera does what he does, which is basically, I don't even know if he let up a base runner. Let's see here. So bottom of the seventh, top of the seventh, rather. Excuse me. Rivera comes in. He walks the first guy. He walks uh, Pendleton. Then he gets Blouser, Grissom, and Lemke in order. Then in the bottom of the eighth, or excuse me, the top of the eighth, he gets... Jones, McGriff, and Lopez in order. So we're in the ninth. Yankees actually seems like they might, you know, they get a guy to second base. 
the inning ends. Maddox actually pitched the whole game. He got a complete game loss. So we go into the ninth. It's three to one. When did the Braves get that first? They get their first run. They got their run. Early. I think it was right after the Yankees scored theirs. It was in like the top of the fourth. That's right. Yeah. Pendleton ground. All right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. McGriff. Uh, yeah. They walked in a run in the third. So we go into the ninth. It's three to one. Rivera has retired six straight guys after a leadoff walk, but we're going to Wetland now. And Wetland comes up in the top of the ninth. He strikes out Andrew Jones. He lets up back-to-back singles to Klesko and Pendleton. So it's first and third with one out now. Luis Polonia comes up. Wetland gets Luis Polonia out, strikes him out swinging. Rafael Belliard, they bring in to pinch run for Pendleton as the tying run. Marquise Grissom singles. So suddenly it's three to two. And I believe at one point, it's Belliard's at second. At one point, Wetland throws a wild pitch. So now the tying run is at third base. And Mark Lemke's up. And I will never forget this. The pitch before Lemke pops up the third base. And Charlie Hayes goes over towards the dugout. And this is the era before the guardrails in front of the dugout. So it's an open front step. And Hayes is getting close. And he starts to fall. And, the, you know, this is 1996. So the cameras aren't everywhere. They're certainly better than they had been at any point up to then. But the cameras don't show it. And Hayes falls into the dugout. And for a half a second, it's a question of, is he going to come out with the ball? And the, the World Series is over. Mm-hmm. He comes out, they show the replay, and it, the booth, I believe, is Joe Buck and – is Joe Morgan there? No, Morgan was NBC. It was Joe Buck, Tim McCarver, and Bob Brenly. Bre- Brenly, okay. But then there was also pregame guys who were cutting in. Oh, yeah, Steve Lyons and yeah. Dave Winfield. Winfield, Winfield's the one I'm thinking of. Because Steve Lyons was the one who's still going into game six, was saying the Braves were going to win the World Series, which – if by game six, you thought the Braves were still going to win the World Series. I don't know what you were watching. So they're showing it. And I think it might have even been Winfield cutting in saying, like, you know, theoretically, the Braves are supposed to clear that top step. Mm-hmm. And theoretically, they could have called dugout interference. But like to end the, yeah, World, end the World Series on dugout interference. So literally the next pitch, Lemke pops it up again. And that's if you hear the Joe Buck quote, he says, in the air again, Hayes waits. The Yankees are champions of baseball, and Hayes covers it, runs to the mound. They all start to celebrate. I think John Wetland was concerned because he dropped to his knees and then got pushed back. He thought he might break his ankle. Um, They all celebrate the famous clip of Paul O'Neill runs in and kind of like tumbles over the pile. Stumbles off the pile, Yep. yep. And the crowd celebrated. They cut right to Joe Torre in the dugout crying with his staff, Don Zimmer, and, and all the rest of the guys. Stottlemyre. Stottlemyre. Yeah. You know, the crowd. I remember they, they cut to a sign in the crowd in New York that said, you all go home now. You hear they started with the mounted police riding around the stadium. Wade Boggs hopped up and took a ride around the stadium on the uh, back of the uh, horse with a mounted policeman. And uh, the Yankees had won their first world championship in 18 years. Wetland MVP. 
saved all four games. Saved all four wins. You know, four, made, made them games. all made them all an adventure. But the other thing about Wetland was he he had, he had this superstition where he would only wear one hat all year. So his his cap by the end of the year was like all oh. dirty and sweaty and matted and everything. And apparently when the series started, they needed to put the World Series logo on it. And they they had to like get it like a branding iron or something <laughs> and put it on there. And it like smelled horrible with the, the six months worth of sweat from the cap combined with like the hot of the whatever they used to affix this logo onto it. So. Yeah, I mean that that is the '96 Yankees. We've you know we've tried to capture as much of we of it as we could, both on the field and kind of you know. And look, I, I think that certainly there is you know a level of nostalgia for us. You know, you team when you were young, you were growing up. But I really do think you can just you you think of all the moments. You know, Gooden's no hitter and the Jeffrey Mayer game and the game four of the world series game five of the world series game six of the world series. It really is just a team that no other teams were better. The 98 team was a dominant team. And, you know, even 99 was a really good team. And, you know, you go back, you know, even like 2009, A-Rod and Tekshera and Matsui and, you know, Sabathia, but there's just, there's something about this 96 Yankee team it's just special. There's uh, something special about this team. Well, and I think it's two things. It's more than two things, but A is all of these stories. And if you were an Orioles fan or a Mets fan or, a, you know, maybe a Red Sox fan at the time, you feel differently. But the Yankees were the baby faces that year. There's a little bit of 01 Patriots in there. In wrestling terminology, the baby face is the good guy. And no matter how much of a bad guy you've been at some point, you can become the good guy. And in 1996, and again, a lot of people will deny this now, but in 1996, that team... Nobody was, hated so, this team. Again, if you were an Orioles fan, I see where you feel differently. If you were a, a Mets fan, okay. But in general with Joe Torrey and guys like Jeter, who was a rookie and strawberry and Gooden and David Cohn. And there was very little to hate about this team. And they were playing the big bad Braves in the world series, which sounds weird, but they at the time were playing the big bad Braves. This team was not, it was impossible to hate this team. To be honest, at the time, again, you can look back and, and if you have, you know, you know what happened after that and, and whatever. But um, so there's that. And then there's also. You may be a little different than me, like. I was not old enough to remember the 90 Giants. I don't know that you were old enough to remember them in any meaningful way. Yeah, and I wasn't really a football fan yet, so. Yeah. So this is the first team of yours you remember winning a championship. Yeah, absolutely. No, and that can never change. That's exactly this will right. Always be our first team that we remember winning a championship. Yeah. And we didn't know at the time they were about to win three in a row after this in 98, 99, and 2000. We didn't know they were going to get to six World Series in eight years. As far as we knew, 
this was it. They might, you know, we didn't know they were going to, what was, what the future store, it was in, what, what was in store in the future. So, you know, I go back to what I said when I was a much younger man at the start of this show. I'm unapologetically romantic about this team. And this is one of the very few that I will never apologize for my sort of uh, wistful feelings about. And I think just objectively also, you just look at how many games were just crazy classics, crazy comebacks. Like I said, every game in the ALDS was a comeback. There was only one comeback in the 96 World Series, but game game five is a classic game six is a classic game four is obviously a classic the Orioles series it's it's mostly the jeffrey mayer game but that's you know how many games turn on something like that there's just there's so many stories there's so many guys i mean who would have thought that after all the twists and turns that gooden and strawberry would end up winning a championship together 10 years later on the yankees and that's sort of to put the button on it was very famously in 86 gooden did not make the parade. Yep. Mm-hmm. So even in 96, even though he had not pitched in the postseason, he's at the parade. Just to sort of circle back to what we had talked about in the beginning, there was never any talk after this about the Yankees going anywhere else. Yeah, that's there a good point. About up, there was talk about upgrades to Yankee Stadium. There was talk about new a new stadium, which we eventually got. This put the Yankees right back mm-hmm. on their pedestal which eventually led to people hating them again of course yeah and there were dis there were more dislikable guys later on obviously when they brought in clemens but you know knoblock wasn't a guy and then anybody was going to be in love with david wells you know with 96 will always be different than what came after because, you know, even, you know, 97, 98, they start to sign some of these big major marketing contracts, whether it's Adidas or whatever. And 96 is probably the Yankee, the closest the Yankees are ever going to get to being an underdog team. Yep. A beloved underdog team. And it just, it, they'd never been that way before. And they'll probably never be that way anytime after. But no, for that right. one year, they were as endearing as any small market team could be. And that is really kind of, you need a special team to be able to pull that off. Not only in New York, but especially on the Yankees. So, mm-hmm. all right. Well, this was a long one. I am not surprised but you know, part of the reason we got into this was to sort of demonstrate our passion for sports history. And I think, you know, growing up with teams like this are a big part of why we have that. So we appreciate it. Thank you for sticking with us for these last uh, many hours and hope you all enjoyed it. And we'll be back with something a little shorter next time around. And until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.